You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. This morning, I want to preach a message specifically to one person. Are you wondering if it's you? It's not you. That person is over here on the front row. It's Enrique Novella. Enrique, would you stand along with your family, Claudia and Jessica and Jaylene and Johanathan, and we're missing Karen, who's over in high school in Chicago. This is... Enrique, who will soon be planting Harvest Bible Chapel in Belize. This is his last weekend with us, and uh, on Wednesday, they will be back in Belize. At the end of this service, we're going to hear from Enrique and uh, let us know how we can be praying for him. There's actually a prayer guide, a bookmark in your bulletin that you could be praying. How many of you would commit to be praying for Enrique's family, the church plant down in Belize? We're going to be with him. We're going to be coaching him, supporting him, and hearing back from him. And uh, uh, this, this, Enrique, this is my last shot at you, Okay. So, so get a pen and a paper and get ready. Actually, for the past five months, we have been pouring into Enrique everything we know about church and church planting. We have been shaking him like a Coke bottle for about five months, and on Wednesday, we are popping the top, okay? So you can imagine how excited he is, and uh, we want to let him know that he is loved, but we also want to commission him and remind him of some things that the Lord would say to him as a church planter. So you guys can have a seat. Thank you so much. And uh, how many of you know that I was just joking about it being all about him? Um, It's about you too, because this is about everyone that the Lord would use to build his church. I know some of you showed up today and was like, I didn't come here to build anything. I'm just, I'm just, okay, well, we're going to pull you in, all right? Because the goal, as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, is that we would walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Last week, we talked about having a deeper conviction about unity. This morning, we're going to have a deeper conviction about ministry. And we're going to look at four measures of a church that walks worthy. And we kind of started on it last week. It didn't quite get done last week. So we're going to talk, first of all, about this subject of unity. Let's just kind of begin in where we began last week, Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll begin in verse 1. Follow along with me. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then verse 2 tells us those five ingredients that create unity in any church, any family, any organization. Here they are, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another, that's forbearance, and love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. Is anybody picking up a theme in verse 4? What's the key word? One One body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you know what the key to unity is? It's oneness. It's bringing yourself together with other people that believe the same thing. 
Now, that is not everybody's approach to unity. As a matter of fact, there's, there's an organization in our community that has kind of piqued my interest. I drive by this building, and it, it has the word unity in its name. It's called the, it's called the Universalist Unitarian they don't call themselves a church anymore, and for that, I am grateful. They, they, don't need, they can't use our name because they don't believe in the same things we believe. They, they now call themselves the Universalist Unitarian Association. And so I'm like, I wonder what happens in there on a Sunday morning. And so I went to the website to kind of figure out what, what are the key values, what's the mission statement of this particular organization, since they're all about unity. And I'm like, how do they create unity? And so I went to the website, and this directly from the website is what it says. Unitarian Universalism is a theologically diverse religion that, is, that encourages people to seek their own spiritual path. Our faith draws on many religions. We are a movement that calls you to put more faith in yourself, your community, and your beliefs. Simply put, we are a guided path toward a better you and a better world. Well, unfortunately, that is a very broad path that leads to destruction. And uh, uh, we would lovingly say to somebody that would be a part of something like that, that is not the way you create unity. The way to create unity is not to embrace everything, it's to embrace one thing. And the first of those we've already read about in verse 4, we belong to one body, one body. You know what threatens unity? It is a spirit of autonomy that refuses to sacrifice personal independence to belong to something bigger than yourself. Now, some of you, the reason you checked out on church and the reason why you haven't become a church member is because you tried that one time and you got hurt because the body was imperfect. And so you sit back and build up walls and isolate yourselves. And like, no, I'm never going to get hurt again because I'm never going to attach myself to an imperfect body. Well, the problem with that is you are not attaching yourself to the body of Christ that he promised would prevail over the gates of hell. And so a spirit of autonomy is something that will prevent unity in your family and in your church. Uh, this past couple of weeks has been kind of a hard week for our church body. There's been a lot of people sick. There's been a a lot of people actually have accidents and surgeries, and there's a lot of people in, our, in, in the hospital. And as I've gone to visit these people that are in kind of crisis situations, and, and what, what I have found there is almost all of them make the same statement to me when I, when I visit them. Do you know what they say? They say, I don't know how anybody that doesn't go to church gets through stuff like this. Because do you know what's been happening? The body has been wrapping their arms around those people, loving them and caring for them and praying for them and encouraging them. That's when you really need a body. And you don't really need a body until you're in crisis. And it's, it's sad but true that so many people pick up the phone and call the church office when they go through a crisis and yet they've never, never attached themselves to a church body or a small group up until that point. And that's kind of sad. And so the body is something to which we all belong to. Not only that, but we are led by one spirit. 
the Holy Spirit that's promised to guide us and comfort us. And what threatens this is an independent spirit, the human spirit that falls prey to every wind and whim and somehow thinks that we're going to have some personal revelation from God. No, it's the Holy Spirit that leads us all together. And thirdly, we are confident in one hope. It's it's crazy to me that every time we have a, go through a political season or an election process, our temptation is to look for a candidate or a party or an economic plan or science to save us. Listen, the hope of the church is that Jesus Christ will one day reign on the earth unrivaled as king. And so that's where we place our hope. We are following one Lord. There are too many people that feel like they can have a relationship with Jesus without surrendering to him. So often I hear people say, you know, I've trusted Jesus as my savior. I just haven't embraced him as my Lord. It doesn't work like that, folks. You can't pick and choose which titles of Jesus you want. If you refuse him as Lord, he will refuse to be your savior. And so it's in our submission to him that we all bring all of our, um, all of our individual freedoms and surrender them under his lordship. We are convinced of one faith. When it talks about faith here in the scripture, it's not just talking about a general belief, I'm a person of faith or I'm a faithful person. It's talking about putting your trust in one body of doctrine, things around which we all believe. And whether or not you can be unified in the church all depends on how you answer this question. How do you believe a person is made right with God? How do you answer that question? If we answer that question the same, we can be unified. If your answer sounds something like this, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your gender is. If you answer that question the same, we can be unified. We're convinced of one faith, not every faith, not any faith, one body of faith, one body of doctrine. We profess our faith through one baptism. And so it says there in verse 5 that there is one baptism. Now, uh, that word baptism simply means immersion. It means to be saturated. It means to plunge into. And it could be talking about being plunged into the church, being plunged into the population of Christ followers. But the way that you are plunged into in a public sense is that you physically go through the waters of baptism and you're plunged into water. You're saturated with water. You're immersed and baptized with water. Now, what we're concerned with is this. If you are allowing fear of commitment or the fear of failure to be publicly baptized it's really hard for us to be one because all of us who have been converted and baptized have gone through the process of looking like a drowned rat in a public worship service in order to declare I'm identifying myself with Jesus who lived, 
died and was buried and was raised again. You see, it's a drama. Lived, died and buried, raised again. Oh yeah, that's that guy, Jesus, and I'm with that guy. Now, if you have been converted to Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, repented of sin, surrendered to him as Lord, congratulations. Have you been baptized since you were converted? You say, well, Trent, I, when I, I grew up in kind of a different faith system, and my mom and dad told me that they took me to church, and I was baptized as a baby. Uh, congratulations. Um, but uh, that accomplished nothing. Biblical baptism takes place after conversion. And so my question to you is this. Have you been baptized on the right side of your conversion? If not, at the end of this service, there will be pastors standing here. You should come and say, you know what? I want to profess my faith through baptism. And now you can be embraced, immersed into the body that is the church of Jesus Christ. And we'll schedule your baptism. Next, next baptism's coming up on March the 5th, the first Sunday we're going to the new schedule. And we would love to baptize you around 8 o'clock in the morning. Or 9.45 or 11.30, but we need somebody, we need to distribute all that out, okay? Number seven, we worship one God, not any God, one God and Father of all. What threatens our unity is all the gods with little g's, the lesser gods that we want to worship and bow down to. And yet what creates the unity is when we we worship one God and Father. And I love the way that Paul inserts the phrase Father here because he must have been thinking about Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed that his church would be unified. He prayed for us. And do you know what he said in John 17, 21? That they all, who's they? That's, that's Harvest Granger. That's this church. And he prayed that Harvest Granger may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you know what is at stake in our unity? It is that the world would believe that there is a God who sent his son to win a bride, the church, through love. And the world could be saved through this relationship we have with Jesus. And yet, if we can't get along in here, what, what right do we have to be believed out there in the world? That's what's at stake in being unified. It's the first measure of a church that walks worthy. Here's the second measure of a church that walks worthy. It's diversity. Love the balance in Scripture here. Notice here in verse 7. But, but is a contrasting conjunction. So he's now going to contrast unity with diversity. But... Grace was given to each one, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I love this. Do you see the two-word phrase there, each one? Those seven statements in verses 4 through 6 applied to everyone. But the statement in verse 7 applies to each one. You see, there are some things that everyone must believe in order for there to be unity, 
but there are some gifts that God has given to each one that creates diversity. There is no one else uniquely like you because, do you see it? You have been given a gift by God's grace. He has gifted each one. Grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Turn to your neighbor and say, God has given me a gift. Do you believe that? Now, what if I ask you to turn to your neighbor and to describe that gift? Would you even have a clue what it is? You see, those gifts that God has given are things that make you uniquely you. Some of you are extroverts, some of you are introverts. I like the introverts better, but uh, um, can you guess which one I am? It's like, oh, but Trent, you seem so extroverted up there. Yeah, I'm a little different when I come down. Um, So anyway, God gives us different gifts according to the measure of Christ. And some of you are organizers, and some of you are planners, and some of you are more spontaneous, and some of you are funny, and some of you are not, and some of you, some of you have have financial gifts, and some of you do not, and some of you have awesome gifts. Now, now here's the thing. Every Sunday, I stare into the faces of incredibly gifted people that did not use that gift for the purpose God gave it. I'm looking at people that did not spend a single second this week using that God-given gift to build God's kingdom. You use that God-given gift to build your kingdom. What did you do this week using your gift to build God's kingdom and God's church? And the things that you look at in this church or any other church and would have uh, the tendency to criticize and say, well, that's broken and that's missing and that's messed up. Do you know why it probably is? Is because you weren't in there plugging that hole. God gave you a gift to build his church. You see, it's this. Not only did God give you a gift, God made you a gift. You are a gift to the church to build up the body. And nobody can uniquely do what you do. And the reason you aren't using that gift is because you do not understand the third measure of a church that walks worthy, and it's this, ministry. Until you deploy that gift for the purpose which God gave it, you haven't embraced ministry. Now, we're going to read here that ministry is modeled by Jesus. Ministry is modeled by Jesus. Now, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10, but I want to give you a warning. This is a little warning label on these verses, okay? These verses are complicated. As a matter of fact, theologians and commentators can't quite come to unity about what they actually mean. Um, And do you notice in verse 8, in your Bible, the way it's formatted, is it kind of bracketed or indented? How many of you have a Bible like that? Let me, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. That's a little clue for you that are reading your Bible that Paul, who's writing this, 
is quoting from another place in the Bible. And he's quoting from the book of Psalms, chapter 68. Psalm 68 has 35 verses. Paul just uses one of the verses, but when somebody in the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, it's like a hyperlink. You click on it, and it takes you all the way back to those other verses. So, let me just read those verses to you, and then I'll do my best to try to explain it. Verse 8 says, therefore, notice it's that connecting conjunction. It's, he's still trying to explain unity and diversity in ministry, and so he says this, therefore, it says, Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So it's in the context of gift giving. But then verse 9 says this. Paul gives a little commentary on Psalm 68, and he says it this way. In saying he ascended, everybody underline the word ascended in verse 9. What does it mean but that he also descended, underline the word descended, into the lower regions of the earth. Verse 10, he who descended, underline descended, is the one who also ascended, underline ascended, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Everybody got it now? Everybody understand? Like what in the world is this talking about, okay? Now listen, if you were to read all 35 verses of Psalm 68, it's a story about a conquering king who invades the territory of a rival king to set the captives free so that he can take them back to the first king's territory. And you're left wondering in Psalm 68, who is this king? But by the time you get to Ephesians chapter 4, we know who this king is, don't we? What is his name? King Jesus. What did King Jesus do? Well, first of all, he saw a bunch of captives who'd been captured by a rival king. Do you know who the captives are? It's you and me. You see, you and I, by our sin, had become slaves of sin. We had lost our freedom to obey God, love God, serve God, and through our own fleshly appetites, we're serving and worshiping and, 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 and subjects of a, to a rival king, and we had no way out of this. We were shackled. And Psalm 68 says that our king descended from his throne and came down this hill into the valley, and he won the victory over the rival king, setting you and I, the captives, free from sin by his work on the cross and his resurrection. He descended into the lowest regions of the earth, like in a tomb. That's pretty low. On a cross, in a tomb. But what happened three days later? He ascended. And when he ascended, he led you and I and every other captive of sin who would repent and believe, he allowed us to ascend to where he came from. Do you get it? Do you get it? Jesus modeled ministry by leaving his world and entering our world so we could ascend 
to his world. We couldn't ascend to his world until he first descended into our world so that he can take us with him when he ascended back to his. And so that's why it says in verse 8 that he ascended on high and led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And so do you know what ministry is? Ministry is descending from where you are into where the need is. Do you understand there are captives all around us? They're sitting in cubicles next to you. They're sitting in algebra class next to you. They're sitting in Notre Dame classes next to you. They're in the mall. They're walking the streets. They're walking their dogs. They're living in homes next to you. And they're captives. And God has given you a gift. The gospel of your salvation. The grace of God. And it is not deployed until you understand I have to descend from church. I have to descend from my home and enter into where these captives are so that I can bring them to where Jesus is. That is the picture of ministry. And so we finally, after that very confusing verse, get down to verse 12. Why did he give these gifts? He tells us verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ministry is modeled by Jesus. Ministry is a gift, but ministry can be defined as equipping. To equip simply means to furnish or to supply. In its original meaning, it actually means to restore something to its original condition. It means to put into service or into action. Is actually used as a medical term to set a bone. And so God gives you this gift to restore relationship to the way that it was supposed to be with God. And now with that being done for you as a gift, God wants to use you as a gift to restore others. Ministry is equipping. And then finally, contrary to popular opinion ministries work. I know some of you think that the pastors only work one day a week. Uh, not true. How many of you have ever in any form embraced a role of ministry? Raise your hand. Did you find out once you got into it, it was harder than you thought it was going to be? And do you know why? It's because people are jacked up. <laughs> Ministry's hard. Equipping people is hard. And it is a long, patient process. And yet Jesus descended to where we were so we could ascend to where he is. And that is the work of ministry. It's going to the hard places and it's equipping people. It's restoring and setting things into motion. One of the things that he does for us in verse 11, some of you should have noticed we skipped that verse. Did that intentional? Verse 11 tells us about these five special gifts that God has given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I'm so grateful for, uh, from the very first time in our church, we have taught you and you have embraced this understanding that ministry is not something you hand to a few paid professionals in the church, okay? Ministry is something the paid professionals equip the volunteers to do so that two things can happen. 
the ministry is mutual and the ministry is multiplied. The, the six pastors on staff at our church cannot meet all the ministry needs. I mean, I've got five children and a wife. I, that almost is overwhelming, okay? To think about the 16, 17, we had record attendance last week. We had 1,750 people show up between the two campuses. And it's like, I, if, if I thought that I was the one responsible for meeting all those needs, I would not sleep well at night. But knowing that I'm looking into the faces of people that have embraced ministry and that person's been equipped and that person's been equipped. I show up at the hospital again. There's been a lot of needs. I can't get to the hospital fast enough before there's people from small groups there and they're like, Trent, by the time you got here, there are like seven people that showed up to pray for me. We don't need you right now. I'm like, awesome, awesome. That is the way the church is supposed to work and it's happening. And for those of you that are on the fringe of our church, I'm praying for you. When you show up, when you get to the hospital, if anybody shows up for you, if, if you haven't showed up and been a part of the work that's been going on around here. And so he gives us these five special forces gifts to the church. And I want us to look at them in detail here in verse 11. Notice he says, and he gave, first of all, apostles. Do you see it? Let's read all five. Apostles and prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. Theologians kind of debate whether that's four or five, whether the pastors, the, the shepherds and teachers are one or both. And anyway, we're going we're gonna to kind of put it into five categories just so that we can explain it in more detail here. But first of all, he mentions apostles. Apostles. Now, let me just say something about apostles. Apostles are pioneers equipped with vision. Now, in the strictest sense, in the entire history of the world, there were only 13 apostles, okay? This is an apostle with a big A, kind of capital A apostles. And we know who they were. We read about them in the Bible because they wrote the Bible, uh, humanly speaking, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the 12 disciples that Jesus called? So we have 12, but then we had one defector. What was his name? So we don't count him. Now we're down to 11. But they replaced that guy in Acts chapter 1 with a guy named Matthias. And so now we're back up to 12. And then a few years later, we have the apostle Paul that was added to the group. And if my math is correct, that is 13. So there were only 13 capital A apostles. But as we read in the next generation and even all the way down to our generation, God has always used people with an apostolic gift. Now listen, anytime the preacher uses a multisyllabic word in church, it gets weird, okay? So even apostolic is like, ooh, that sounds spooky. Now listen, that's just a better word than apostle-ish, but that's what it means, okay? It just, it's kind of apostles with no capital, okay? It's just, there's, no, there's a work of apostles, and you know who these people are. It's people that are pioneers, and they're entrepreneurs, and they're church planters, and they go to the hard places. Apostles arrive first in Belize and in Romania and Liberia and Hungary and Greece and Valparaiso 
in Tampa, in every place that I just mentioned, I had a conversation with somebody in or about those places that's being touched by the ministry that's going on in Harvest Granger. And there, there are people calling from all over the world wanting some people with some vision to help them pioneer a work all over the globe. And that's what Enrique is going to be investing in. But you know what? It's not just all over the globe. You may be the first believer in your family. You know what you are? You're an apostle. And there's some pioneering work that you got to take the gospel there. And you got to work. It's a work of ministry. Some of you, you may be the only Christian in your algebra class or the only Christian in your neighborhood. In that sense, God is calling you to the work that is apostolish. Notice this verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We've already read that back in previous weeks, but it says uh, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. It's a foundational work that apostles do. The apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so we have apostles. Secondly, we have prophets. And the prophets are a gift to the church. Prophets are proclaimers equipped with boldness. Now, a lot of times, prophets get a bad rap. Because when you think of a prophet, a lot of people think of a grumpy old guy that just wants to hit you in the face with a hammer or a Bible and say, get your act together, right? Is that the way you think of a prophet? But notice, that's not the way it's described in the New Testament. Speak to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. How many of you think the church needs more of those people? Yeah. And the church needs more people like you to do that work to build up, not tear down, to encourage, not discourage, to offer consolation or comfort, not to come along and kick the wounded, but a prophet is somebody that takes the word of God and applies it directly and boldly with wisdom to the most practical areas of a person's life. Thirdly, there are evangelists. Evangelists are messengers. They don't write the news, they just deliver the news. Evangelists are messengers equipped with the gospel, the good news. Now listen, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are checking out on me right now because you're looking at this list and you don't see your name anywhere on this list. Um, apostle, no. Prophet, no. Evangelist, no. I don't even like people. I don't even like to make eye contact with people. I... I, these are not my gifts. Listen, even if these are not your gifts, this is your work. This is your responsibility. Notice what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. If you're going to be in ministry, you're going to need some of that. And notice he says, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. You say, I'm not an evangelist, I don't have to do it. Well, then just do the work of an evangelist. And you might find out that you can develop a skill, and underneath that skill, there really is a gift that you didn't know you had until you started to deploy into the ministry. If you sit on the hill, you're never going to find out what the gift is. 
it's not until you descend the hill and start mixing it up with the captives that you discover that you can do things under divine empowerment that you would never do in your own humanity. And so do the work of an evangelist. And then he goes on and he mentions shepherds or pastors. Same word in the original language. Pastors are shepherds equipped with leadership. Now, if God gives the church shepherds, what does that imply about people in the church? They're sheep, which is not a compliment, okay? Because sheep, they can't feed themselves and they can't lead themselves. You know what they need? They need shepherds. And look at this verse in Jeremiah chapter 3. It says, I will give you shepherds. God is such a gracious God to give us exactly what we need in the church. I will give you shepherds after my own heart. And look at what they do. They will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So you're not left to your own intellect. You're not left to your own education. God gives shepherds, and I'm so grateful for so many shepherds and small group leaders around here. I call them micro-pastors or micro-shepherds around here, and they do the work of the ministry and mix it up, and, and they do exactly that. They're shepherds, shepherds after God's own heart. And then finally, teachers. Teachers are instructors equipped with clarity. So what's the difference between a teacher and a preacher? I don't know, and apparently Paul didn't make too much of a distinction when he was talking to Timothy because notice the way this verse goes. Preach the word. Oh, he's talking to preachers. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And what do these preachers do? They reprove, they rebuke, and they exhort with complete patience and teaching. Oh, it starts with preaching. It ends with teaching. I'm not sure we're preaching stops and teaching starts. It's just instruction about who God is and who you are and how you can be made right with him. And it's equipping and it's loving and it's patient and God gives gifts. Now listen, I don't know where you are in your walk with God, but you are not walking worthy of your calling until you descend and start doing the work of an apostle, of a prophet, of an evangelist, of a pastor, of a teacher. All of us are given different gifts, unique. Each one has been given a gift. But if it's not deployed for the purposes of building the body up, do you know what your problem is? You've got a problem with maturity. And I'm trying to equip you right now. And I don't have a whole lot of time to unpack it, but look down here in verse 13, as he talks about the essential measure of maturity. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. I love that two-word phrase, children tossed. Does that bring any um, memories in your mind? Do you remember when your kids were small? What would, you, what, what would dad do with them? just toss them just they were happier in the air you know and you try to convince mom it's 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 no I mean it's that's a dangerous place to be a a child who is tossed is very vulnerable God doesn't want you to be like that he wants you to grow up into mature manhood 
not tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, for from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is properly working, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the measure of a church that walks worthy. I'm going to call Enrique up here right now. Enrique, I want you to just share your heart with our people here. I want us to get a vision for what uh, the Lord is going to be doing down there in, um, in Belize and I remember the first time I saw Enrique. So back in March, um, Andrea and Micah and I, along with some other Harvest Bible Fellowship pastors, went to Belize, and our mission was clear. We were going to do two vertical church conferences, kind of teaching what our church is all about, and here's our pillars, and here's our doctrine, and here's our funnel, and here's our discipleship model. And uh, as, as these 75 Belizean pastors and, uh, gathered, as I was teaching a session on unapologetic preaching, most of the pastors in the room were doing this. You do what? And there was one guy doing this. That's my guy right there, okay? And so uh, I said, hey, we, we, we're going to plant a church in Belize with this guy. And so this is Enrique Novello. And Enrique, tell us just a little bit, why do you, you want to plant a vertical church, a Harvest Bible Chapel down in Belize? It's all about God. It's all about the Great Commission. He has called me into his discipleship, into go and make disciples to all nations. And one of the things that I always remember, as we were with Pastor Trent this, um, from Sunday to Tuesday up in Michigan, and Pastor Trent spoke about his insufficiency I do know that I also have many insufficiencies, but one of the things that fires me up is what Jesus Christ told his disciples, but you shall receive power. And I'm just leaning on the Spirit of the Lord to use this vessel here to, through the ministering of his word, since harvest we know is is focused on four pillars, and one of the, those pillars is proclaim or preach the authority of God's word without apology. And only the word of God can transform the heart of humankind. And transformation needs to come to Belize. Belize is a young nation where we really need that. Why? Because I would say that almost 85% of the churches in Belize have a background in Pentecostal, Assemblies of God. They are much more focused in sensationalism rather than on the Word of God. And as I would keep reminding my own self that only the Word of God can keep transforming me. And that is one of the reasons why I want to go and plant a Harvest Bible Chapel in Belize. It's been four, four months, almost four months and a month here. 
as Pastor Trent said, it's like a bottle of Coca-Cola that just been, has been shaken up and ready to just go back to Belize and pop it open. So what's waiting for you when you get back there? What's your core group look like? What's the next five or six months look like? How can we pray? We, I had scheduled uh, my first vision pre, uh, meeting presentation on the 17th of February, but the Lord has, has other plans. I've been praying for a worship leader and one of the young fellows that follows Micah, he got in contact with me yesterday and he cannot go to the February 17th vision meeting presentation. And he wanted me to, to have a vision meeting presentation with him and hopefully we'll have some other young guys and we will be having our first vision meeting on the 11th of February. Keep praying for us. Why? Because we will be having vision meetings presentations every Friday until Easter Friday when we will have uh, worship time. And on Easter Sunday, we will be starting our vision meetings on Sunday mornings. And then we are praying to the Lord that we launch Harvest Bible Chapel on the 17th of September. All right, we're going to pray toward that goal. I'm going to ask you to take your place right down there, and I'm going to ask our elders to come, and we're going to pray over Enrique commissioning him. Putting